welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Man, looking forward to being with you guys today. We're going to be in Psalm 51, Book of Psalms, chapter 51, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And I actually, here in the worship center, have preached this psalm uh, twice, once in 2015 and once in 2021. And I'm not so arrogant to think that you remember any of those sermons, <laughs> or either of those sermons. But even, even still, um, while I could probably do that and you wouldn't remember, I, I want to approach today's text a, a little bit differently. The the primary focus of Psalm 51 really is about it's addressing and confronting our sin, but it also is a call to repentance and an an invitation to repentance, showing us how to repent. You remember the context of this psalm, maybe you're heading there and and Psalm 51 even says this, but it says, mine says, the Psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. So he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he went and got her husband Uriah and had him killed, had him murdered. And so Nathan, the prophet, came and confronted David, and he wrote this psalm as a response in his guilt, in his, the middle of his sin. You know, we know objectively we are all sinners. Romans 3.23, real simple, real explicit, says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And even with that objective guilt comes subjective guilt, what I'll call it. So meaning it, it, you feel guilty, you feel that shame. That, that's a reality. But we know if we're in Christ, Romans 8, 1 says, because of all that Jesus has done, the therefore in Romans 8 is looking back at the first seven chapters of the gospel in Romans 1 through 7, says, therefore, if anyone, excuse me, I'm mixing verses here. Therefore, there is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you know Jesus, you don't stand condemned because of his grace, because of his mercy. Now, what I want to do this morning, like I said, approach a little differently. I think that the first kind of primary issue we see in Psalm 51 is dealing with repentance confession. But I think there's a secondary issue in the text that is really a primary issue for so many of us who are Christians, and that is chronic guilt. Chronic guilt. Living under this umbrella or this, this cloud of constant guilt and shame over the things you've done, over the things you are doing, or just obsessing over your sin. I believe probably half the people in this room, if they were honest, would admit they struggle with some form of chronic guilt. So if you're like, I don't know, I I hardly ever feel guilty about things. Well, that's not really a good thing necessarily. but (laughs) But maybe it's not you, but I guarantee you, someone you know and love struggles with chronic guilt. I want to read to you uh, something Eric Metaxas, he's a great author, wrote on Martin Luther. So Martin Luther, the great reformer from 15th, 16th century, um, Eric wrote this about Martin Luther. He says, Luther seemed some kind of unprecedented moral madman on a never-ending treadmill of confession. 
Instead of looking upward and outward toward the God who loved him, he zealously and furiously fixated on himself and his own troubling thoughts. It was as if he was chasing his own tail, making himself winded and dizzy. And some of you, some of you can relate to that. You constantly feel like, oh, God's mad at me. I've just not done enough. I'm just, you have this shame. And maybe it could be over a billion different things. I love what author Kevin DeYoung said in thinking about chronic guilt. He says, for some of us, we, we constantly feel like we could pray more, which could we all pray more? Absolutely, right? He says, maybe we feel guilty because we aren't bold enough in evangelism or we like sports too much. Texas Tech. <laughs> we... We feel, we feel guilty because we watch movies and television too much, or our quiet times are too short or too sporadic, or we don't give enough, or we feel bad because we bought a new couch, or we don't read to our kids and our grandkids enough, or we feel guilty because our kids eat Cheetos and French fries. <laughs> we don't recycle enough. We need to lose 20 pounds. We could use our time better. We could live in some place harder or something smaller. I mean, the list of things that can trigger this chronic guilt is an endless list. But friend, if you know Jesus, you are not meant to live under chronic guilt. I want to be real clear, and then we'll just kind of dive in here. Sin is serious, and you should confess and repent. As a believer, when you sin, you should take that to the Lord. But you're not meant to live under chronic guilt. We're going to see five things, really reasons in the text, and I'm going to have lots of other uh, references for you this morning. I want to kind of, if you live under chronic guilt, my goal is to kind of shock and all your chronic guilt out of your heart. <laughs> kind of machine gun style this morning. Number one, chronic guilt ignores God's character. And I want to be clear, because if you're prone to chronic guilt, you're going to feel bad. Oh my gosh, I'm ignoring God's character. No, chronic guilt, what it does, it leads you to ignore God's character. Look at verse one of chapter 51. He says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. What we see here is God, David knows God is gracious to him, not because David's got it together and because he perfectly repented. No, God is gracious according to God's faithful love. The word there in Hebrews is kesed, is his faithful covenant-keeping love. So David recognizes, God, the only chance, the only reason I get to experience your grace is because of you, not because of me. See, grace and kindness flow from the heart of God. It says, again, in verse 1, it's according to God's abundant compassion. God is rich in compassion and mercy. Exodus 34, 6, when God reveals himself to Moses and he's going to describe himself to Moses, the Lord says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. That's how God describes himself. Matthew chapter 11 Verses 28 through 29. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, humble in heart. It's the one place in the New Testament that Jesus describes his heart. So what flows forth most naturally from his heart is that he's gentle and lowly. So he's gentle in how he handles us and lowly meaning he's accessible to anyone. Think about that. The creator of the universe is saying, hey, I'm lowly. Anybody in your, whatever situation you're in, whatever your struggle is, I'm accessible. That's his character. The very existence of Psalm 51 is evidence that God is a gracious, loving God. Like, if God was just an evil tyrant who anytime we did something wrong was like, you're dead to me, I never want to see you again, Psalm 51 wouldn't exist. But Psalm 51 exists because we know that the cross of Jesus Christ proves there is a remedy, a redemption for our sin. And because of Jesus, we can come to God and confess our sins. And he is joyous and happy to forgive. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. It's who he is. It's his nature. Our KDO program here at the church put together a cookbook that was inspired by moms here or of the kids that go to the KDO program. So this particular cookbook I'm referring to was put together by, I believe, the four and five-year-old class. And what it was, it was the teachers asked the kids about some of the recipes that their mom made. So what ingredients are there? How does she cook it? And they put together a cookbook for Mother's Day. And it was awesome. It's not edible. (laughs) Yeah, it's not edible as a dad of the kid that made this says. (laughs) So one of, the, one of the recipes was for spaghetti. And here are the ingredients. Number one, cottage cheese. <laughs> it gets a little better from there. Noodles, sauce, meatballs. Here were the instructions for spaghetti. Number one, leave it in a pot. Number two, go watch TV. <laughs> and number three, eat it. It's good. It's good. And then another recipe was for nachos. Two ingredients for these nachos. (laughs) Beans, cheese. (laughs) That's all you need. Instructions. Put the beans and cheese together. It's good. Cook them in the microwave. Number three, eat with no chips. (laughs) Number four, even better, sometimes you can eat with chips. <laughs> so good. It's funny, whatever, who, who knows the reason why, it doesn't really matter, but for whatever reason, these kids are missing some key ingredients for these recipes, right? And so if they try to make this on their own and, and live this out, so to speak, they're going to be sorely disappointed, right? I think a lot of us as believers, we're missing some key ingredients about God's character, Maybe when you, when you became a Christian, you, you got it, you understood. But as you've gone in your walk, rather than growing in grace and in the gospel, you've just seen God as this, I have to be perfect. After everything right, you've forgotten that key ingredient to his character is that he's abounding in compassion and gracious and slow to anger. You know what, because of that, because of who he is, we can come boldly to him, as Hebrews says. We can enter into his presence with joy and confidence, not because we've got it together, because we don't, no, but because of who he is. 
His forgiveness flows from his heart. I love what Thomas Goodwin, he was uh, an English preacher and theologian in the 1600s. He says about this idea of, of chronic guilt. He says, that which keeps men off, so what's, what keeps men and women away from God and not really approaching him, he says, is that they know not of Christ's mind and heart. The truth is, he is more glad of us than we can be of him. The father of the prodigal was the forwarder of the two to that joyful meeting. Do you remember what did the father do when he saw the son? He ran. He says, have you a mind? Mr. Goodwin saying, are you paying attention? (laughs) He that came down from heaven, as himself says in the text, to die for you, will meet you more than halfway as the prodigal's father is said to do. Oh, therefore, come in unto him. If you knew his heart, you would. Friend, you are not meant to live under chronic guilt if you know Jesus Christ. Because it's a denial of God's character. Number two, chronic guilt says partial where God says perfect. Chronic guilt says partial where God says perfect. Look at verse two. It says, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. David's making this prayer not just oh, haphazardly. No, he knows that when God cleanses, God cleanses completely. He doesn't miss a spot. He's good at what he does. So he says, God, would you cleanse me completely? I know you can. Verse seven, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Note the, the certainty, the confidence that David has. God, when you cleanse me, I know I will be clean because that's who you are. God, when you wash me, I know though my skins were like, my skins, though my sins were like scarlet, they'll be whiter than snow because of you, Jesus, because of you, God. Purify me with hyssop. So this was a plant that the Old Testament priests would take and, and dip in water and sometimes even blood and sprinkle it on a worshiper as a symbol of cleansing. It was a ritual of cleansing. He's saying, God, I need you to cleanse me and wash me. And I know for a fact I will be clean. Then in verse nine, he says, turn your face away from my sins and blot out. So as you might take a pen and blot out a word on a page or scratch it out that you don't want to be there. He says, God, blot out all my guilt. Take it all away because I know you can. See, the problem with chronic guilt is it feels like, well, God's kind of forgiven me, but there's still some leftover guilt and sin and shame. No, scripture teaches us when God cleanses you, you are clean. Not partially, but perfectly. Psalm 103 verse 12, 103 verse 12, God says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far is east is from the, from the west? Forever, they'll never meet again. You go east, you're just gonna go east forever. You go west, you're gonna go west forever. As far as the east is from the west, he's removed our transgressions. Transgression, literally, intentionally, knowingly crossing a boundary. So you know that line's there, but you're gonna... Mm, step over anyways. He said, if not just your 
accidental sins, but your intentional sins, God has forgiven and removed those from you. I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to what the author says about Jesus and comparing him to the Old Testament priest. This is Hebrews 10 verse 11. He says, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which he can, excuse me, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Then down in verse 18, now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Jesus, through his one sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross, forever paid the penalty for your sins and wiped your slate clean. Not just partially, he didn't have to keep, I gotta keep, no, one time and it was done. Remember what he said on the cross? He didn't say, well, we're kind of getting there. I'm 98%. No, he said, it is finished. The work is complete. So too many of us walk around with this kind of 98% mindset of like, well, I'm 98%, excuse me, 98% forgiven, 98% clean, but there's this 2%. I know that God just is mad at me and hopefully he's going to wash that away. No, if you are in Christ, 100 percent completely forgiven clean and made whole and made new chronic guilt says partial where god says perfect isn't it annoying when you do some cleaning somebody comes behind you and hey I just, you missed something there <laughs> or man you go through the car wash and there's a lot of spots missed, right? That is not what your heart looks like when God's done with you. If you've trusted for Jesus, trusted Jesus for salvation, you are free, clean, and forgiven because of him. And what do we do because of that? Hebrews tells us in light of what Jesus has done, in light of this perfect sacrifice, this perfect cleansing, we rest. Doesn't mean we don't grow in him. Doesn't mean we don't make disciples and live for him. But it means we have, a, instead of this oh, chronic guilt and weight over me, and I got to do all these things to perform for God. No, I can rest in Jesus and what he's done for me. Rest. Number three, chronic guilt leaves you in brokenness, but God leads you into joy. I'll say it again. Chronic guilt leaves you in brokenness, but God leads you into joy. Brokenness is a good thing and is part of the Christian life. Brokenness meaning sorrow over sin. Look at verse 17 in chapter 51. David says, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. Even back in verse eight, it talks about his bones being crushed. So when you sin, there should be a brokenness over your sin, meaning you're, you're, you're sorrowful, you're repentant. Lord, forgive me. I'm, I'm a broken mess. God, I need you. 
But chronic guilt makes you sit there and waller in it. Waller's a good word. And just, oh, I'm just, I'm the worst. I'm, I'm so terrible. I can't believe I did that. That's not really brokenness. That's just like wallering in your shame. That's, that's not what David did. David was broken. You should be broken when you sin. But look what David prays and asks. Look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. So yes, God, I've been broken, but lead me into rejoicing. In verse 12, restore the joy of your salvation to me. Friend, if you know Jesus, you're not meant to stay in chronic guilt. You're meant to live in joy, not because of your righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus. Chronic guilt leaves you in your shame. Jesus leads you into joy because you know you're forgiven and cleansed in him. I love what one author, uh, Eric Raymond said, thinking about guilt. He said, guilt is the chauffeur that should drive you to the cross. Think about that picture. It's appropriate, again, to feel guilty when you sin, but it should drive you, and it shouldn't be a long drive to the cross where mercy and grace abound. See, what chronic guilt does, it's like a crazed Uber driver who just drives you in circles (laughs) and won't let you out of the car. Friend, if you're in chronic guilt, tell that Uber driver to pull over and you're just going to walk to the cross because you're not meant to circle in shame. First Peter 1.8, Peter said, talking to believers, he says, though you have not seen him, though you haven't seen Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not, even though you do not see him now, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. If your life looks more like guilt and shame and wallowing and not like inexpressible joy, you need to get your eyes off of yourself, off of your brokenness and onto the hope, the forgiveness, the joy of Jesus. Because he leads you into joy. You know, you can't grow in your relationship with God when you're stuck in guilt and shame. Like, think about your, one of your best friends, your spouse, if every time you spent time together, coffee or dinner or whatever, if the whole time you were with each other, you were just like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm just not better. I, I still feel bad about what I said three years ago. I'm just, my bad. Like, <laughs> at some point, your friend or your spouse would go, knock it off. <laughs> Stop it. Like, you, let's, oh, that's done. Like, let's, let's just enjoy being together. You can't grow in your relationship with Christ if every time you think about him or come to worship or you spend time with him, you're just like, Lord, I know there's promises in your word, but I'm just, I'm I'm just broken. Like at some point he's like, hey, I love you. Let's move past that. Thank you for confessing. Thank you for repenting. But let's walk in the forgiveness and joy now. Don't stay stuck there. Listen, you're not fighting for righteousness, so you're not pursuing Jesus so that he'll love you and forgive you. No, you're, you're pursuing Jesus because he has. You don't fight for righteousness, you fight from righteousness. There's joy in knowing he has saved you and made you his own. Number four, chronic guilt magnifies your sin, not your savior. Chronic guilt magnifies your sin not your savior. 
again, uh, that spinning, that chronic guilt, oh man, I'm just, I'm just the worst. That, that's, that's magnifying, that's shining the light, the spotlight on your sin and not on what God has done, is doing, and will do. You know, David, even though he messed up pretty bad, like we're not into qualifying sins, but I mean, he did commit adultery and shortly thereafter kill the lady's husband. Like, I mean, they were not, there's not sizes of sin, but that's pretty serious, right? Like, and even David, he didn't just for the rest of his life magnify his sin. Now look even in the text. He says in verse 10, God create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. He's not talking about losing your salvation. No serious scholar of the Bible thinks that. No, he's saying that, God, I want to be near you. I want to know your spirit, your presence. Verse 12, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Big word, verse 13, then... I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. God, work in me, create a clean heart in me. I need your forgiveness, restore joy because the goal where I'm headed is I'm gonna teach sinners your ways. I'm gonna tell other people about how good you are, God. When you're spinning and obsessed with your own sin and shortcomings, you're not telling other people about God. You're telling them about yourself if you're telling them anything. No, you're meant to magnify your Savior and his goodness and his forgiveness toward you. Look at verse 14. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So God, he recognizes there's forgiveness, there's removal of guilt, but the result then is, God, I'm gonna praise. I'm gonna worship there's been times in my life that I've been in a worship service and sensed myself kind of spinning over sin and I messed up and God must be mad at me and I felt like the Lord's just tapped me on the shoulder and said, I've forgiven you. Let's just do what you're supposed to do, what you came to do. Let's worship. Quit obsessing and spinning over your sin because when you do that, you're just magnifying yourself instead of the Lord. You know, David didn't magnify his sin. He, he got his eyes on the Lord eventually, and that's what the apostle Peter did too. Peter ever make any mistakes? Yeah. The Lord is on, Jesus is on the way to the cross to pay the price for our sins, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, and Peter denies him how many times? Three times. By the third, kind of violently, I don't know that man. But you know what, if you just skip a little forward in your Bible to Acts chapter two at Pentecost, we don't see Peter, oh, you know, guys, I just messed up. Like, can't believe God, I don't know, maybe I think he forgave me. No, in Acts two, Peter was proclaiming the gospel of hope and forgiveness in Jesus, boldly magnifying Jesus Christ because he knew his, his sin, his rebellion against God was part of his story, but it was not the end of his story. The apostle Paul was killing Christians. And yet as we read the New Testament, after he was saved by Jesus, he, read, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. After that, he acknowledges he's the chief of sinners. He had a, a terrible past and even still struggled in sin. But over and over again in the New Testament, 
Paul points us not to himself, his own faults. He points us to the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. Because it was part of his story, but it was not the end of the story. Friend, if you're if like you've been magnifying your guilt and your shame and circling in that, it is time to turn the page. It's not the end of your story. Get your eyes on Jesus. Sing, share the gospel, magnify him. Number five, chronic guilt clouds the gospel. Chronic guilt clouds the gospel. That's what really all of this is about. It's kind of a summary statement. That when you're walking in guilt and just can't break free from that, you, your, your vision, your clarity on the gospel, the best news the world's ever known, becomes cloudy. Which that's contradictory to, contradictory to what God wants for you. Ephesians chapter one, verses 17 through 19, Paul's praying for believers that their, their eyes of their heart may be opened, may be enlightened to the hope they have in their calling in Christ, that they, maybe, their eyes will be opened to the inheritance that they are to God, meaning the treasure they are to God, and they will understand the power of God's work in them. Then later in chapter three of Ephesians, verses 18 through 21, Paul prays that they would know what is the height, the depth, the width, and the length of God's love for them. He's saying, none of us have even come close to grasping the depth of God's love for us displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ. However, however much you think you understand God loves you, trust me, he loves you even more. He is head over heels about you. And when you walk in chronic shame, guilt clouds your vision and perspective of your understanding of that. It's the greatest story ever told. Verse nine in chapter 51, really all of this, we have to read with a New Testament lens. We need to read all the Psalms with a New Testament lens. Why? Because Jesus did that and I wanna do what he does. Verse nine says, turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. So David's saying, God, you can't look at me. Don't look at me because of my sin. Turn your face away. If you read the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul says that he made him, God made him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's what theologians call the great exchange. So Jesus on that cross, God the Son, bore all our sin, all our guilt, all our shame, all, all of our condemnation. And in that moment, as he bore our sin, the Father looked away from him, poured out all his wrath on Jesus so that he can look at us as forgiven and clean and made whole because he put all the filth and sin of us onto Jesus. And the exchange is Jesus puts on us all of the goodness, righteousness of himself. That's the gospel. That the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. I love what Jerry Bridges says, that his wrath was not merely deflected and prevented from reaching us. It was exhausted. Jesus bore the full unmitigated brunt of God's wrath. His wrath against sin was unleashed in all its fury on his beloved son. He held nothing back. Jesus took our sin on himself. The father turned his face away so he can turn his face to you with grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. That is the gospel. 
As the late Tim Keller said, that in, in your sin, you are far more wicked and evil than you would ever dare to believe. But in Christ, you are far more loved and accepted than you ever dared imagine. Don't let chronic guilt cloud the best news the world has ever known, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I started by telling you about Martin Luther and his struggle with chronic guilt. You know what began to set him free from chasing his tail, so to speak, and dizzying, dizzying himself and trying to be perfect for God and this chronic guilt? What set him free and what started the greatest reformation or uh, so we're, we're, the re- greatest revolution the world has ever known, the, re- the Reformation, was when Martin Luther understood the gospel. When he understood the truths of the gospel, it set him free, and it set Europe free from the chains and the shackles of legalism. That there is freedom, there is hope, forgiveness, there is grace in Jesus Christ our Lord. My prayer for you this morning, if you feel stuck under this cloud of shame and guilt, that the gospel will begin to part those clouds and this, the light of the Son of God would shine on your heart. I want to end by reminding you of perhaps one of the clearest explanations of the gospel because of its power to break through those clouds of chronic guilt from Ephesians chapter 2. Do you remember Ephesians 2? Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not like doing okay and kind of pleasing God. No, completely dead. No hope of a relationship with God because of your sin. Following the prince and the ruler of this, of this world. So he's saying, you are following Satan. Well, I was say that 11 years old. Yeah, even as an 11-year-old, before Jesus, you were dead in your sin and ultimately on a tra- trajectory of following Satan. But then he goes on to say, I believe in verse six it is, but God being rich in mercy. He goes on to say, he saved us by grace through faith. Not by works, not by getting it all together. No, God saved you because of him, not because of what you do. It's God's grace that saves us because he is rich in mercy, abundant in mercy. He doesn't run out. Think about that phrase, rich in mercy, the author Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says this, that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day, when we stand before him, quietly, unhurried, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. Friends, embrace grace. Jesus stands as the Savior of the world, offering you grace and mercy. Will you walk in it? I remember when I was a... It's a freshman in college. I was at a 
worship night with our uh, Baptist Collegiate Ministry. Here we call it something different, but and a professor, Dr. Todd Tanner, was speaking that night. I, for a long time in my life, I've struggled with chronic guilt, not because of well, my parents did something. No, not at all. I just, I, I'm just wired in a perfectionistic way. Anybody relate to that? Like, uh, I come across, across, I think, kind of goofy and silly, but like, I'm pretty hard on myself. I remember Dr. Tanner was preaching on the woman caught in adultery in John 8. And how they were ready to stone her and kill her and ask Jesus, what should we do? And he began to draw on the sand, right? And Jesus said, he who, with, who is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. They began reluctantly to drop their rocks and walk away. And Jesus said, hey, where, where are your accusers? He said, they can't condemn you. I'm not going to condemn you. Go and sin no more. I remember Dr. Tanner talked to us about, hey, you, you should repent of your sin. Be broken of your sin and quit walking in your sin. Walk away from your sin like Jesus told this woman to do. But then he pointed out to us as he picked up a rock. He said, Jesus told her he, he didn't condemn her. He said, if Jesus doesn't condemn you, why are you condemning yourself? If Jesus isn't throwing rocks at you, why are you throwing rocks at yourself? And he had us all, there's too many of us here this morning for me to do this. It would have been really cool. But he had us all, had a rock under our chair. And he had us write the things that we felt guilty over, shame over. And he had us dump them in the trash. And another option was to dump it at the foot of the cross and quit walking in chronic guilt. Man, I didn't live perfectly free from chronic guilt from that moment, but man, it was like the sun began to shine in my life and break free those clouds. I began to walk in grace and mercy and in truth. But my prayer this morning as I've been preparing that you would know the grace of Jesus this morning. You quit throwing rocks at yourself and walk in his love and his forgiveness. Maybe you this morning... <laughs> maybe you're like, hey, uh, I appreciate the message, but I just like don't ever feel guilty about things and maybe I should. <laughs> like, that's okay. Well, actually, it's not okay. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is, I promise you, a friend or a family member struggles with this too. And the response for you this morning is to pray for them. Maybe to share some of these truths with them, not in a condemning way. Gosh, that's not what they need. No, but in love to say, hey, remember the truths of scripture. So as we respond in a moment, maybe you just need to, to pray for somebody. Or maybe if you're that first person who needs the freedom this morning, maybe as there'll be some pastors down here in a minute, maybe you just need to come and ask them to pray for you. Or maybe you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus for salvation. You've never received his grace, his forgiveness. The reality is if you don't know Jesus, you do stand condemned and you should walk in chronic guilt because apart from Jesus, you have no hope. 
So the good news this morning, even in the midst of your condemnation, is that you can stand not condemned by coming to the open arms of Jesus for salvation, forgiveness, and hope. By turning from your sin, accepting the free gift of Jesus given to you through the cross that he died on. But then three days later rose again, conquering death, hell, and the grave, offering you purpose, life, forgiveness, hope, if you'll just simply receive it by grace through faith. Jesus, would you save me? Would you be in charge of my life? And if that's your prayer this morning, again, there'll be some pastors down front that would love to pray with you, love to explain the gospel a little more, and love to love just encourage you as you trust Jesus. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to stand and sing and respond. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's message. 